The conversation you're about to hear, the positive twist, was held between Alison Cobb, Sarah Riggs, and Jeremy Robert. Cobb starts by reading the preface to Plastic, an autobiography, the book she published with Nightboat Books in 2021, where she describes Plastic as the epitome of the Anthropocene and its damages on the personal and global level. She elaborates on her relationship with genres and her environmental engagement. She talks about the togetherness of lived experiences when she documented her failure to communicate with the inhabitants of Marsville, Louisiana, once dubbed the most toxic town in the United States. She walks us through the three stages of apology, the creative menderings of fiction and imagination, and the joyous and sustainable strength that can stem from our understanding of the plastic tragedy and how literature, in its own way, can fend off resentment and help locate the strength to take action. So we're here with Alison Cobb on the occasion of her new book, Plastic, an Autobiography, with Night Boat Books that came out this year, 2021. And we're very pleased to host her with Invitation to the Species. And Jeremy Robert is joining me, Sarah Riggs, uh, for this conversation. And Alison is going to begin by reading a preface, a version of a preface to her book, her amazing book. Thank you so much for having me, both Sarah and Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, we're gathering at very different times in our home places, and that's kind of a beautiful thing about technology. You can see each other's faces. Uh, so I'll just read a bit from the preface of Plastic an autobiography, and it, it starts with an epigraph from Rebecca Solnit. I wanted to trace the lost patterns that came before the world was broken and find the new ones we could make out of the shards. The thing turned up in a corner of the yard just outside the fence. I found it when I went out to take Quincy for a walk. Curved and black, plastic, four feet long, a foot at its widest. I thought at first it was a car bumper. I put it in the grass by the porch. The next morning, it was still there. I sat next to it in the sun and looked closely. It was not the first piece of plastic junk I had sat staring at. For nearly a year, I'd been picking up all the plastic I found on my daily dog walk. I'd been arranging it into patterns, taking photographs. I'd been storing it all up in plastic garbage bags on the back porch. I didn't know exactly why I was doing this. I wanted to understand something. Plastic on the dog walk, plastic on visits to the beach, plastic studding the ground everywhere I looked. I gathered it all up. I am the no and the yes. A line from the poet Hannah Sobelman's first book. It has lived with me for years, sometimes whispering through my mind in its old remembered rhythm. 
In the poem, Sobelman follows the line with a qualifying phrase. She narrows it, makes it domestic. But I want the raw declaration hanging there on the turn of itself. I am the no and the yes. For nearly half my life, I've worked for an environmental group. I spend most of my days in front of a computer screen, taking in a deluge of information about planetary trauma and emergency. Most of it floods through me, too vast to grasp. But plastic was a shard that stuck. Plastic I could touch, and it could touch me back. I dragged the car part inside the house. Nearly 10 years later, it sits beside me near my desk. I learned this, that the world is not broken or that it has always been shards, kaleidoscopically interwoven, not one world, many threaded through one another like fungus hyphae through soil. Worlds end. As Catherine Yusuf points out in a billion black Anthropocenes or none, some worlds have ended over and over, lives consumed and discarded by individuals woven into systems that give them life and death power, like settler colonialism, like capitalism. These are systems built by humans, but they exceed individuals. They extend across generations and geographies planet-scale forces of destruction. Plastic waste stems from this same consume and dispose violence. I learned that waste is not an unintended consequence of a miracle new technology. Waste is inherent in plastic production as it accelerated after World War II. In 1945, days before the U.S. military incinerated two cities with atomic bombs, a DuPont executive looked forward to the end of the war and the surge of buying that would follow as soldiers returned home and bought houses and cars, washing machines and refrigerators. The job ahead, he told a group of marketing experts, see to it that Americans are never satisfied. Plastic embodies this infinite desire. Conjured out of gas and oil, the seemingly endless reservoirs of dead plants and animals underlying earth, plastic transmutes death into eternal life. The word plastic refers not to any specific object, just the quality of a material, that it is capable of taking shape and endless stream of shapes. Objects formed from plastic ease suffering and save lives, artificial hearts, IV bags, the tubes snaking out of a respirator. Plastic makes cars safer, airplanes lighter, and delivers drinking water. The single largest use of plastic, though, is for containing other objects. 40% of plastic goes into packaging to be used once and then discarded, driving endless demand for more. Companies work to keep these facts hidden. When the evidence becomes too overwhelming, plastic clogging roadsides, oceans, living bodies, companies shift responsibility onto individuals through things like anti-littering campaigns and ensure that taxpayers and municipalities pay the tab for managing the waste. The lives harmed at every step 
human and non-human drop out of the equation. The same consume and dispose violence threads through me also. It has benefited me my whole life. I grew up the daughter of a nuclear physicist in Los Alamos, the town that built the atomic bombs, which ended some lives in order to save others perceived to have more value. We are woven into the same net, me and bombs and this car park. For a decade, I followed threads that tie us together through airplanes and sailors, the hydrogen bomb, Pacific Islands, the Nazis and Heidegger. I followed threads through silence, loss and grief, through the birth of chemistry and the invention of radar, through patriarchy, empire and chattel slavery. I followed threads through apologies and their failure, through a pandemic and an uprising and living lungs struggling to breathe through old wounds and new ones, hurt reverberating, aching to be remembered. This object, a book and its journeys, this broken down car part, its life, this is my no. I have wanted this car part and its entanglements, often ugly ones and painful, to leave me. I have wanted not to have to face in my privilege the terms of its existence. I learned this. There is nowhere to go. The same terms that made this piece of plastic made me, my own body, and each of my breaths. This is also, it must be, my yes. Wow. I am... I, I'm so moved by this preface and um, various passages punctuating your long book um, and the final chapter as well. Um, the, the kind of emotive strands that make it through your very knowledgeable kind of analysis of various corporations and bombs and um, and that 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 impact um, that you register here and what you've just read on a on a personal level, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, you if you could talk a little bit about your personal relationship with your father and his background and sort of how this has evolved for you to get to the point where. You see there's no place to go and that this has to be your yes. Um. Yeah, thank you, Sarah, for your kind words and for that question, which is um, not many people ask me about my father. So I like I like that question. Uh, well, you know, I called the book an autobiography because when I was thinking about writing it, I, I frankly wasn't necessarily thinking about writing about plastic per se, but I, I wanted to document this change that we're all living through in very different ways that some people call the Anthropocene, when humans are having this geologic scale impact on the planet. And um, I thought plastic is something that a lot of us have this intimate daily relationship with, but we don't think so much about because it takes so many different forms. It kind of disappears from visibility, at least for me. 
And I wanted to anchor it in my own body and my own lived experience to kind of invite readers into the stakes of that. Um, the relationship with my father and the stakes around that came into the book very quickly because one of the uh, places where people argue that the Anthropocene should start as a geologic era is with World War II and the atomic bombs because in addition to plastic and um, fossil fuels, uh, nuclear contamination is one of the, the global marks um, of human impact on the planet. And so right away, those things were very connected for me. Um, also, I, uh, you know, deeply rejected science <laughs> and studying science in a town that's very scientific. Uh, both my, you know, I chose poetry and, and literature um, my sister is a musician, so we both sort of rejected our father's uh, legacy. But I also have always felt sort of freighted with the subject matter and also, ki you know, kind of delightfully obsessed with science and interpreting it and understanding it. And so when I say there's no place to go, I sort of feel like I've, I, yeah, this is my, because of my particular biography, this is my um, subject that I, I grapple with. And and both my, the ways that I um, am complicit and um, a victimizer in my own privilege and my settler colonialist past, and and also the ways in which it you know it, it creates damage um, for me and for everyone. So living in those two places um, is is uh, where I, I, I often dwell in my work. Can you say, just for people who might not know, just a little bit more about your, your father's involvement in Los Alamos? And yeah, so my father's a nuclear physicist, and he um, came to Los Alamos. Actually, my mother was pregnant with me when they moved there in 1970. And um, so it was after World War II, He's told me, you know, coming of age in the in the 50s and 60s that, you know, nuclear science was the great, like, heroic frontier of science. Um, it was that and space exploration. And so it was like the tiny, invisible world of atoms and the, and the giant universe. And he was drawn to that little world, and that's why he went into it. He spent his career at Los Alamos working in nonproliferation, so working to stop the spread of nuclear weapons around the world um, at one point. I had this business card from him, but now it's lost. His title was Director of Threat Reduction. <laughs> this is like, wow. <laughs> That's rich for a poet. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I don't think you elaborate on the book, in the book that, I, that I'm curious about is your, your writing poetry. And in particular... I, I wanted to linger on this question of desire versus versus or and victimization, like a a kind of tendency that we have to to analyze the horrible impact of pollution or other threats on particular communities, um, which you go into in detail, and at the same time you do it with a tremendous human connection that is unusual. You know, you, you're interviewing people in a way that um, really 
you're interviewing them like a poet with lots of registers of emotion. So I'm, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that and your relationship to being a poet writing this book. And just to add to that, at one point you say you're not a specialist. Um, and I just wanted to say you are a specialist. <laughs> I think um, you really have earned the capacity to write in these various ways. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I do feel like, uh, so I, you know, received a degree in poetry and, and write poetry and I've, and I'm kind of, I think, you know, identified as we all become identified in the world as a poet. <laughs> we were, I was talking with another writer, Miranda Mellis, who is kind of identified as a fiction writer, but she's written a book that she hadn't named the genre for, but other people had called poetry. And she was like, okay, poetry. And I said, oh, you've been genre-ed. You know, the way some of us are gendered <laughs> by how we appear in the world. We've been genre-ed. So I've always had a little bit of an uncomfortable relationship with genre because this book is nonfiction. I mean, it's written in prose, but as a poet with that orientation in the world, I feel like that gives me a lot of freedom to do what you said, Sarah, which is to not be a journalist, to not uh, pretend or attempt that I'm being objective. Um, what I really wanted to do, the book has an epigraph uh, by the physicist Karen Barad, who writes, um, oh, I'll paraphrase it badly. I should just read it. Um, um, she writes, knowing does not come from standing at a distance and representing, but rather from a direct material engagement with the world. And I really took that very deeply to heart. You know, uh, she does a critique of science with this pretend um, stance of objectivity, which is, of course, impossible. So I, I set out really to form relationships as much as I could with people and just and learn together from our lived experiences. I um, you know, I see the book as a collaboration with people. So I shared with everyone what I wrote. I asked them, you know, which is something a journalist or a historian might not do. I asked them for their input. I invited them to remove things if they didn't want them in the book. Another thing that no journalist or historian would probably do. I really wanted it to be, you know, a document that we all shared a stake in. So I just wanted the book to be my way of, of living in the world through this coming to understand what this huge phenomenon of plastic waste and living in the Anthropocene could mean um, through some specific experiences. So I really, I, I gave myself the freedom to be very intuitive in my research um, while being rigorous. I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to represent people's lives uh, um, authentically and to, to represent you know, facts um, with some rigor, but I still follow my intuition and seek to make emotional connections and document my failures too, which I feel like is such an important part of it, right? There's one community that doesn't want to speak to me. They've been spoken to by many, you know, white scholars coming into their community and lawyers purporting to help them and they're done. And so that do documenting that too, I, I felt like was an important part mm -hmm. of the journey. Was that uh, Mossville? Mm -hmm. Mossville, Louisiana. Louisiana, mm -hmm. yeah. I wonder if you could um, elaborate a little bit on what you learned in that process of, you know, really focusing on Mossville as, as a place where, you know, cancer has been spreading at incredible rates. Um, particularly, I think, in terms of those personal rapports that you 
had, even in the face of pot- potentially th- their, their failures that, that communicate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I made connections with people in who wanted to connect with me and I've formed some really deep and lasting and powerful relationships with community members in places along the Gulf Coast. And I travel along the Gulf Coast of the U.S. because that's where, that's really the epicenter of um, this $200 billion build-out of plastic plants is happening in the U.S. It's the Gulf Coast and Appalachia in um, uh, largely low-wealth communities already burdened by a lot of pollution. And so Um, I visited a place outside of Corpus Christi, Texas, and a place called Freeport, Texas, which is due south of Houston, which has um, the largest petrochemical complex in the Western Hemisphere. So it's called Owned by Dow Chemical. Uh, And then also Mossville, Louisiana, which is a town long sort of known for being surrounded by toxic pollution. It's a historically black community founded by um, freed enslaved people after the Civil War. And in fact, the town is now largely gone because this um, South African oil company called Sassol has expanded and basically taken over the town. And, you know, in, in I think it was in 2010, CNN featured Mossville as one of America's most toxic towns. And so they've long been in the media and I did not, um, as I said, um, form relationships in, the, in that town. People didn't want to speak with me, uh, but I did. There is a, a rich oral history of the town. And so I was able to connect with people kind of through that record and hear their voices. And one of my practices was to walk around this largely, you know, abandoned town and listen, listening to the oral history. So I was hearing people's stories and seeing their place of living. And, and that was my way of respecting their, their history and their desire not to engage mm-hmm. <laughs> anymore. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, I wondered if you wanted to jump in with a question. No, yeah, well, I was just wondering why this population in Mosville didn't want to engage in conversation with you. Did, did, huh. Is it because they were fed up about, you know, mm-hmm. the, is, is that mm-hmm. the reason why? Yes. I mean, they've been so documented. You know, there's this phenomenon sort of of the overstudied, over-researched communities and, you know, researchers and scholars, journalists, etc. coming in and documenting this plight, but not materially assisting the community. And that's and that's why <clears throat> I think they were, you know, they were just there. And they were also really, I think, the, the community is quite traumatized. Um, people have had to leave. People are dying. Um, as one woman in a brief phone conversation told me when she told me she didn't want to talk to me, she, she said, we're dying. Um, and so there's a lot of trauma uh, for people even engaging in this anymore. Um, and it brings into the book one of the strands that, you know, I, I explore as a person, uh, you know, a white cisgender person with a lot of privilege um, around apology and when it's possible to apologize and what that means and when it's not really possible. And so part of that episode of speaking with that woman from Mossville, her name's Christine Bennett. She's a tremendous activist from there, has been for many decades, was my failed apology to her. 
So can you go deeper into this question of apology? Um, the, at one point you talk about the three stages of apology and I wondered if you could go into that. And I think, you know, you're, you're frequently reckoning with this question. And I think, you know, it, it really ties into a lot of the work that we've been doing with Invitation to the Species with questions of past, present, and future. You know, I think this woman that you were citing from Mossville was saying, I don't, I don't want to talk to you because it's not going to help me now. You know, that I think she said that seven family members had died in the last year. She's mm-hmm. like that. It might help at some point in the future um, for other people, you know. And um, yeah, I, w- I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. She said uh, I told her I was sorry. And she said sorry is not going to bring back my dead and it's not going to bring back home. Um, she was a person born and raised in Mossville, which um, from the history I learned was an incredibly vibrant and supportive community through the 20th century when, you know, segregation and Jim Crow, when people were uh, really surrounded by racist terror, this was a real haven um, and a joyful place for people. So the pain is very deep. Uh, but yeah, the, so um, what I... I learned about, so then I started to look into apologies and I, because it had come up in the book a few times. And what I learned um, is that there are three aspects of apology. Um, and the the fundamental tenet of apology is that it's a long-term commitment um, and it's a relationship, which is not something I'd ever thought of before. And the three components are, um, responsibility. So, you know, taking ownership of the thing that happened, remorse, expressing the the regret about the thing that happened, and then reparations or retribution, how you, how you make a whole for the person. And um, the apology that I gave to Miss Christine Bennett, when I was speaking with her on the phone, someone I, I didn't know at all, and had maybe a, you know, five minute phone conversation with, was something called an empathic apology where you say, I'm sorry, uh, I, you know, to hear about your pain, but you, you're not able to take responsibility or offer, um, reparations. You're only sort of expressing remorse. Um, and so then there is another sort of a more successful apology in the book that happens with a close friend and collaborator of mine named Yukio Kawano, who's a visual artist and a survivor of um, Hiroshima. She's a third generation. Um, Hibakusha is the Japanese term, a survivor of the atomic bombing. So grandparents on both sides of her family uh, survived the atomic bombing. And we have, a, we have that long-term relationship and commitment that makes apology possible and successful. Uh, so that's another part of the book where um, a, a different option for apology. Would you be willing to read that passage? Yeah, I I sure will. I marked it here. So it's called Sorry. Yukio said she wanted to ask me about apologies. We had met to talk about grant applications, plans to collaborate, usual stuff. We had finished up the business and I needed to leave. I was in a hurry, as always. But Yukio said, I want to ask you just one more thing. She talked about another poet she worked with on a project regarding the poisoning of the Willamette River here in Portland with PCBs and other industrial chemicals. Yukio suggested to this poet, a white woman like me, that she might apologize to the river 
to the Chinook salmon, to native communities, to all harmed by white colonizers. The woman said she couldn't. She said there is not a word in our language for that kind of apology. Yukio wanted to know what I thought about this. We spoke about apologies and what they mean, about how the word sorry is misused to manipulate others or evade actual accountability. We talked about what an authentic apology might be and what it might accomplish. Yukio resisted the idea that apology might need to accomplish anything or anything we could measure. What if it's just something that happens inside a way of being, she asked. We talked about existing as both victimizers and victims and all the ways those states reverberate through our lives. I have benefited my whole life from money that supports nuclear weapons. It paid for every bite of food that entered my mouth as a child, every piece of clothing on my back, all my security and privilege. Yukio asked me, would I, if I were performing in Los Alamos, apologize to all those displaced and harmed by the nuclear lab? Something in me contracted against this. It felt impossible. I'd have to apologize for, well, it would be a global apology for everyone harmed all around the world by nuclear radiation to all beings, I said. Yukio then told me something I hadn't known about her partner, Yute. His grandparents came to Cambodia to escape both the Japanese Imperial Army and the Chinese Communists Party brutality. During the Vietnam War, when Yu's mother was 12, the U.S. bombed her village in Cambodia. A bomb hit her school, and she saw her classmates die. Every time I am with Yute's mom, I feel sorry inside, said Yukio, for all she suffered then and since. I'm in a state of being sorry. I asked her if she'd ever considered speaking her apology. She said, yes, I almost feel ready. We have been building more and more trust. And that's when it struck me. I've been sitting here with this friend I love right in front of me, speaking intellectually of global apologies for nuclear technology and never once considered apologizing to her, not in all the years we've known each other. I sat up straight in my chair and forgot to be rushed and impatient. Yukio, I said, I'm sorry. Your family has suffered so much from nuclear weapons and war. You've lost your mother, your uncle, your aunt, and had such hurt and fear in your family and in your own life. Yukio, she looked in pain. Tears came up in her eyes and spilled down her cheeks. I put a hand on her arm. Tears came up in me also. I didn't know fully what to say. I fumbled. It's not as clear as I'm writing it here, but the words came out from my body, my heart and my guts, not my head. I felt it all through me, that state, the state of being sorry. It hurt because it required really seeing Yukio and knowing and feeling how she has suffered. It required seeing myself also, or feeling myself and the harm my privilege carries. It felt like release, like something broke free in me. We sat looking at each other, a little overwhelmed and stunned, a little awkward, Someone interrupted and pulled us from the moment, which was probably a relief to us both. Later, Yukio wrote me this email. Your apology came by total surprise. Maybe it surprised you too. I didn't have time to prepare its coming. 
Thank you, Allison, for being so raw and so real. We are really present at that moment, even as the rest of the world was worrying about tomorrow or angry about yesterday. My feet were completely grounded and your eyes are my gravity. Yukio told me in the moment, thank you. She did not offer forgiveness and I did not ask for it. It was a way of being kind of apology. That's uh, so, so powerful. It's the second time I've heard it read um, aloud, but the first time by you. The, the, first, the first time was by Suwako. Yeah, Sawako Nakayasu, a Japanese-American poet, so all kinds of resonances there in the history as well. Yeah, I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm interested in these questions of sort of circularity and there's, there's no sort of inside, outside. There's, no, there's nowhere to go um, and the, there's no way to get into the future without going into the past and sort of reviving everything in the present. And um, uh, interestingly, our, our previous conversation uh, for Invitation of the Species included Monica de la Torre, and she was uh, questioning uh, empathy um, and just how, how far it can go, you know, and that it could go too far. And I wonder if you had any moments like that where you felt like you had you had overextended, that you had you know, um, in your in your work to try to understand and I think really go through the different stages of apology that you outline. I think you're this this is a kind of book that reaches toward reparations of a certain deep way. Um, mm-hmm. That's so interesting about empathy going too far. Is she thinking about, um, what does she mean by going too far? Like taking a toll on the, on the person feeling it or a sort of not a, inappropriate identification with others who are suffering? Or Yeah, I, I, I think, um, for example, in talking about slavery, like, that you can't you can't become the other person you can't know um and that there's a danger in sort of potentially like trying to occupy that position Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I think that's that's really smart and true and I I think that's part of the the sort of boundary that I um that I wanted to respect with um all the communities, but with the people in Mossville in particular who weren't interested, you know, in engaging with me in that way, I wanted to not um, um, cross that line and impose myself in a space where I hadn't been asked to be. And so, and I, in one of, and yet still understand and learn from the community. And it's a little bit ironic that those oral histories were actually paid for by Sassel, the community that the company that wiped out the community, uh, and and they are very bounded. You know the um, and I write about this in the book. The oral history interviewers ask sort of only certain questions <laughs> because they don't delve into some ground. So again, there are silences and gaps there, and I think that's part of like the respecting of the failures of a of the book in a way that there are silences and gaps that I won't I won't 
be able to um, cross. And, and, and loss is also a thread in the book, as you know, that there are just some things that me, I won't, I won't learn and I won't recover. And that's a, that's a reality and a kind of grief and loss that is just part of our experience as beings. Um, so that, you know, those silences, those losses were, were something that I, I accepted. And there was, I visited the community, um, at one point and again, was just sort of wandering around. There's I think it may be the only business left there. It's called the Heaven on Earth Barbecue. It's owned by a local family who's one of the founding families of the community. They're called the Rig Maidens. And their name was very famous to me, you know, from reading all of their histories. And they're sort of legendary for their wonderful barbecue. So I went in and there was a young woman working there. And I I, I sort of chatted with her a little bit. I didn't tell her that I was writing a book. I didn't tell her anything about me and, you know, just kind of made a human connection with her. Not, um, I'm asking you for something kind of connection. And, and then, you know, she was, she was open with me. You know, she said, she talked about the oral histories. I didn't ask her about them. You know, she said that not everybody participated in them. And she said, well, maybe people didn't want to because you know, it hurts is what she told me. And I decided, you know, I didn't go any further with that. That was just a tiny interaction. I didn't ask for more. I didn't try to take sort of advantage of that opening. I just let that be what it was. Um, and so I think that was a way, I don't know exactly that that's a limit to empathy, but I definitely just wanted to respect the limits that were there. Um, from a, yeah. from a, a writer's perspective, the, one of the incredible moments in the book, I think, is when you talk about uh, an American officer who was, I, I believe, in, in the Philippines. And mm. you you spend a whole chapter talking about his traversing these bodies of water. And, you know, we, we have no idea why you're talking about him. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the next chapter, you talk about a baby albatross. Um, uh, and I, I don't know whether I can give this away. I, I, oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, in 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 the opening of the stomach of this baby albatross, of which there are many pieces of plastic and debris, there is an identification tag of this officer. Um, and I think, like in terms of what you can do, what risks you can take. This is an incredible one, um, and I just, I, I was so moved by it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, there's a, uh, that was one of the things that actually spurred the writing of the book was this piece of plastic inside, you know, probably people have seen the photos of al baby albatross who are fed by their parents from the ocean, flying fish eggs and other things. And then, but now increasingly also plastic gets in there. And so the babies get filled up with plastic and they can't pass it and they can't eat anymore and they die. Um, and the photographer, Chris Jordan, has taken these beautiful photos of decaying albatross with the plastic intact inside them. Um, this was an albatross that the uh, different photographer, Susan Middleton, actually came to know um, as she was photographing in the Pacific Islands and then it died and she wanted to see what was in it. She took every piece of plastic out and took a photograph and one had this World War II ID tag on it. And so that just stuck with me for years. And then I, st I started to explore it. Again, wanting to find connections through my own 
biography, my own lived experience. And it just turned out the pilot of that naval squadron came from, was raised on a farm very close to where I live in Portland, Oregon. And I was able to speak with his son. But you're right, I'm asking the reader for a little bit of trust because I go way far away from plastic and spend time with a soldier who was shot down in the Pacific, um, which is likely perhaps where this piece of plastic might have come from in the ocean. And 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 then you don't find out how that thread ties in until a little later. And I, I just, you know, was asking readers to kind of dwell with me in these seemingly unrelated far off possibilities to kind of then show how really deeply entangled we all are historically, globally, um, into the future. And, you know, it's so funny because Sarah, you said you had no idea why you were reading about this. And, you know, the poets who read this book right away sort of, I feel like, see what's happening. <laughs> they trust the leaps in narrative and juxtapositions, leaps in space and time. And then some others who may be less accustomed to poetic techniques of composition are sort of like <laughs> a little baffled <laughs> by what's happening here. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, did you, you had a connection with the albatross, the baby albatross? Um, well, I was, well, the albatross made me think of uh, Baudelaire's poem as well, you know, the albatross, because you mentioned Coleridge and uh, also about Baudelaire comparing itself to the albatross being on this boat and being mocked by all the ship, you know, and the sailors and saying that his giant wings prevent him from walking, you know, and he's the prince of heavens and, you know, is, is being mocked and burned by all these ships, you know, and I wonder if we would find plastic in his, you know, the abdomen of this albatross and you know, how poets to some extent are as well albatross, you know, all interconnected like this, you know, and what kind of stories could, you know, uh, all the threads, all the plastic thread that could come from one albatross to another and trying to figure out all the stories that are entangled to each other. It's, it's really moving. Oh, I love that you raised that Baudelaire poem. I don't talk about it at all and no one else has raised it so far, but it is such a, it's kind of the... Um, you know, so Coleridge writes the rhyme of the ancient mariner very much from the human point of view, but but Baudelaire takes the animal's point of view, and that's such a beautiful turn. And you're right, there's very rich resonances in terms of how we can be out of, you know, bird out of sky, fish out of water, how we can be sort of out of place as <laughs> as poets and artists in a very capitalist global society and you know even writing sort of in between genres and being genre in a way as I have it, it um, I think poets have this experience a lot of artists who you know cross genres it's very hard to be marketed or placed in a world that looks for where you go on the shelf or you know what is the blurb going to say about the book so but kind of a I love the sort of you know dwelling in that complexity and and you know and, and not a complexity that leaves people out but that invites people into those entanglements is what I hope for not a complexity of specialized language or barriers to reading or engaging but just a kind of way of and that's why again I wanted to anchor all this in sort of my own lived experience because I wanted to invite people in um, to sort of do that journey with me thank you for that what a beautiful observation I I wanted to talk to you about joy <laughs> and the final sentence of the book is it's yours 
Yeah, yeah. So one of the, I had a lot of poetic gifts. Um, one was the albatross. The other was that this plastic car part I found turns out after some research, I discovered it comes from a Honda Odyssey minivan, which is very popular here in the U.S. Um, and it has the name Odyssey, so how perfect. Um, so I go on this Odyssey with my family across the South through the Gulf Coast, speaking with these communities, and then to the factory in Lincoln, Alabama, which is where all the world's Honda Odysseys are now made, um, to the attempt is to try to return the car part to that factory and ask them to take it back. Uh, they build themselves as a zero waste factory. So everything, they give you very little information about that, but they claim everything that they generate on site, they then reuse in some way. Um, and luckily my, at the time, eight-year-old daughter was willing to be the ambassador with the car part. So she comes into the factory with this car part, like draped around her neck and her stuffed leopard, which is named Noon in her hands. And she goes in and has this amazing conversation with the Honda representative asking them to take it back. And the representative is trying to be nice to the little girl, but saying, you know, we can't take that here. We don't have any room for that here. And there's one like wonderful moment where my daughter does this like slow pan around this giant sparkling clean room and says, I think actually you could hang it almost anywhere. You have plenty of room. <laughs> and so in her sort of like very straightforward way, not accepting the rejection. And finally, the Honda person just hands the car part back to her and says, we can't take that here. That's yours. And I, I didn't actually hear that that had happened in the moment, but my partner was surreptitiously filming uh, on a GoPro that they were just holding at their waist because you're not supposed to bring anything in. They worry about like corporate espionage, I guess. Um, so they say, um, and then I, when I was rewatching the video, then I heard it and I thought, oh, that it became the last line of the book. Cause what a moment, right? It's like this adult handing this plastic legacy to, to a future, um, to deal with that's yours. So it was just, <laughs> I appreciated the Honda representative for giving me <laughs> the end of the book. <laughs> well, I appreciate your, your sense of humor and your, and your joy. I mean, there's like a kind of jubilance. I gather you also bring plastic parts when you do a talk or a reading, you know, at a particular university or spot and you sort of gather the plastic and put it on the table. Um, yeah. And there's, there's, there's something to that. And I, I, I was just quoting from this um, chapter that you have where you're, where a passage where you're, you're looking at corporate dominance and how not even a patch of grass or, you know, bones, you know, that are, are sacred to certain people, you know, are separate, are allowed to be separate from this kind of corporate um, overtake. Um, and I just, but at the same time, you know, and you talk about this being part of your job in environmental work is that you, you also are telling a story that involves some, you know, a, a, a positive twist. Like, how do, you, how do you make the positive twist, you know? And when I asked you about it the other day, you were, I think you were quoting from Braiding Sweet Grass by Kimmerer. Um, and I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about that and about kind of creating desire um, and how how you're working on that. I know that's like a work in progress in and of itself because you were saying that it's that it's harder 
Let's see, I quote you. As I wrote this book, I came to understand that desire and joy are harder and more resilient and creative than despair. Yeah, yeah. that was one of the <clears throat> very powerful discoveries of the book. I, I work, I've worked in at, for an environmental organization for 20 years, and I, I get to feeling despair at times. It, it takes an emotional toll, but one of the beautiful things of, of getting to know people who whose lives are actually on the line um, <clears throat> is how, how, how much they insist on joy and beauty and it's such a wise form of resilience. And I, I've had this refrain rattling around in my head for several years. It came out of a conversation with the poet C.A. Conrad, who was disparaging hope. <laughs> and I thought, oh, hope is a, hope is a fallacy despair is a luxury. And I just, I, I like that because I think we can't sort of have a naive hope, right? That everything will be okay. We are, are together in a reality and yet, um, we can't afford to despair and do nothing. And I think some, sometimes in my privilege, I think despair can be a little easy because my life is not on the line. Um, and, and what I learned and, and I'm still learning from communities is that in the midst of, you know, this really intense pollution that they suffer and all kinds of other um, barriers and burdens and traumas, um, you know, racial trauma, economic trauma, um, the real power of, of joy and their scholarship around this too. I, you know, um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who you mentioned, Sarah, and I quote in the book talks about you know, she's an indigenous scholar. She talks about that the earth every day gives her joy and it's her responsibility to give that back, and which I love as a kind of reciprocal relationship. Um, and then there's another indigenous scholar, Eve Tuck, who has written about desire-centered research as a paradigm rather than damage-centered research and how it's so important as scholars not to only focus on what's broken and damaged about communities but to uh, speak of, of communities in the complexity of all of their lives, which include, um, you know, their own complicities and, and all of the beautiful things that happen in their lives. And um, there's another poet, um, J.D. Pluker, who lives in Houston, and I visited them. They were very generous with me. Um, he, they're a seventh generation Houstonian, I think a very long history there. And and they said to me, don't be like other northerners who come down here to the south and just write about what a nightmare existence we have. We have beauty and joy in our lives. And they were telling this to me as we were sitting in their garden, which is just like bursting with like papaya and these beautiful tropical fruits, which don't grow in other places in the U.S. And I, I really took that to heart. And it was, you know, I'm laughing as I talk about the Honda part. It's sort of, it's horrific, but we, we need the laughter in order to continue with our work, right? So I truly feel it. And I feel so much richer in my life for having the relationships I've formed and the experiences that I've had in writing this book, even as there's also lots of sadness and grief. So I feel a new kind of resilience that's been a gift to me I didn't expect. I feel that too. And I feel inspired by, by your work and by talking. I'm so glad. (laughs) That's wonderful. (laughs) I just wanted to read this, this quote from Joy Harjo's memoir. She's the, I believe she's still the poet laureate of the United States. And, um, 
a member of the Muscogee Nation, and she writes, Rabbit tried to call the clay man back, but when the clay man wouldn't listen, Rabbit realized he'd made a clay man with no ears. That's from her memoir, Crazy Brave. And I think what your work is doing is is creating ears, you know? Creating ears in the plastic, creating ears in the toxicity, in the nuclear uh, fallout, and you know, that you're listening. You're listening not only to people, but to the objects that have, and the, and the, what, what has come out, you know, and you're dragging around that, that Honda part. I mean, that really is very moving and I think speaks to that. So I just wanted to say how grateful we are that you've written this book and that are sharing it and we recommend it so highly and want to thank also Stephen Motika for supporting this work and his commitment to um, questions of plastic and toxicity. Um, and I know that you've uh, talked extensively with Brian Trier, who's also written a nightboat book. Um, and uh, on, on toxicity. So um, I think we can find conversations between you and Brian Trier on your, on your website. That's true. Yes, you can. Yeah. Thank you for those words. I think that may be the, you know, most uplifting and heart filling thing anyone said is that the book is about years because that's, that's a, such a, that's what I would love and hope and, and desired would happen is the kind of listening. There's a, I have some wonderful mentors in the environmental field and one is really, who's an oceanographer is really fond of saying our, our ears always have to be bigger than our mouths. Um, so I, as a writer, that's a strange, <laughs> that's a strange um, task because we are always speaking, but I hope that the speaking comes from deep listening. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And we look forward to being in touch and hearing what you do next. Okay, thank you.